Good morning. This is uh, Let's Talk Animals from Art Barks to Zebras. This is Dr. John Hunt, your host. We are here live today, and I want to give you the phone number before I forget to give it to you in case you want to call in at 207-469-0500-469-0500 if you have questions or comments on this uh, very exciting um, show today. Uh, I think the topic of the show really will be apropos to my title of, of my show, Let's Talk Animals, because the animals that were involved are ranging from bears to elephants to uh, lizards. So it's very interesting. Um, I want to, again, I always do this, plug my uh, pet sounds on Sunday mornings at 730s, uh, shorts, and I'm still doing that. So hopefully you'll enjoy that. So today, I'm very uh, pleased to have a guest. She's in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, I don't know if she's going to see the Super Bowl or not, but uh, she's so we're going to. This interview would be by phone. Uh, Jennifer Skiff. Uh, she's an award-winning journalist who's traveled the globe as a correspondent for CNN, and um, for more than a decade, she's written several books. And the book we're going to talk about is her latest one, called "Rescuing Ladybugs: Inspirational Encounters with Animals That Changed the World." And let's see if uh, Jennifer's online. Jennifer, good morning. Good morning, John. And of course, I'm going to see the Super Bowl. Are you kidding me? <laughs> um, but I'm, I'm probably not going to see it here in Atlanta, but uh, because I'm on a book tour right now, and I'm traveling um, from one city to the next every few days. But of course, I'm going to see the Super Bowl. I'm so excited. I was thinking maybe you're going to spend $6,000 for a ticket there. <laughs> no, no, yeah, no, nay, nay. Good, good, good. Um, and thanks for you know. Thanks for having me on today, and and thank you for choosing a path as a healer for animals and the people who love them. I really appreciate that, and well, it's a real pleasure to be coming home to Maine with you today. Yes, uh, and that's part of the the meaning the meaningfulness of this is that you did grow up in this area. Uh, what town was that? Bar Harbor. Bar Harbor. Okay, so you are a local. Which is nice. Which is nice. Um, I always ask my my guests um, how you got here from there. In other words, it's just kind of uh, some uh, brief accounting of significant things in your life that led you to be. I would say right now you're you're an accomplished author. So you just kind of share with the readers uh, who you are. Well, thank you for that question. Um, I'm a Maine girl through and through, um, and like everyone in Maine, I grew up in the woods. I searched for salamanders and found comfort laying on beds of emerald green moss like everybody else. Um, I guess in grade school, I really enjoyed books and helping out in the school library. So by the, I think by the ripe age of 12, I asked my grandmother for a typewriter for my eighth grade graduation. And um, I was kind of off after that. My parents told me that I could be anything I wanted to be, and for some strange reason, I believed them. So <laughs> I, de- well, I decided I wanted to be a journalist. Um, I went to school, studied journalism, and went to then working. I, I actually studied broadcast journalism and then worked my way through markets, including Bangor, Maine, um, where I learned so many incredible, valuable lessons from Don Coulson. Mm. As, yes, as I think we all know him. Yeah. Everybody knows Don. He's such a great human being. And um, eventually I landed a job at CNN. And while I was there I uh, for about 14 years, I focused on being an investigative reporter with um, 
primarily working on the environment. And I was given the opportunity by Ted Turner to tell stories about the plights of animals while I was doing that. So I started turning uh, a job that I really wanted to do um, and, and combining it with a passion I had for animals. And um, eventually, I, w- I was traveling um, with CNN to Morocco to do a television special there, and I met an Australian, and probably that was my game changer. He is turned out to be my husband uh, after a very long decade-old uh, courtship. But <clears throat> in meeting him, I was given the opportunity really to travel between my homes in Australia in Australia and in Maine, basically three times a year, I'm traveling around the world. And during that time, I've had the opportunity to see amazing animals in their natural habitat and meet the people who are fighting for them. And that has, you know, brought me to this book, really. So uh, as my next question is, your book does bring the, the reader all over the world with a cast of amazing human beings um, that you introduce in the book, sharing just incredible stories about their interaction with animals. So were these people people you've known over the last 20 years or just recently? I mean, how did these all these wonderful people in this book, how, how long have you known them? How did you get to know them? That sort of thing. Okay. Well, um, as you know, uh, but, but the listeners might not, well, I do a lot of work for animals, um, globally now as an advocate, as a volunteer advocate, actually. In Maine, I'm the chair of the Humane Society of the United States, Maine State Council. And uh, in Australia, I do work over there as well. So I work in Washington as a volunteer lobbyist uh, to stomp out and create laws uh, against animal cruelty and also in Parliament in Australia. So I've been doing this for a long time now, um, representing the voices of animals. In that work, you meet people who are doing the same same thing. So that's just to kind of preface what I'm about to say. The idea for the book, um, actually, uh, again, as you know, because you've read this book, I had an, a moment. I was traveling to Laos uh, many years ago, and I experienced and and witnessed i had a basically a telepathic moment with a bear who was being tortured and at that moment um i decided not to look away from the situation and i worked with the communist government and with the help of many friends in maine and in australia we were able to build the first bear sanctuary in that country to release that bear into a sanctuary and his and his mates who I met on that day as well and so that story that moment in my life is what put me on a path that took me away from fighting just for pets you know the dogs and cats of the world to seeing that every animal is seeing thinking feeling sentient beings and it was in, at that moment I, you know, it, cha- it changed my life. So when I came up with the idea for this book, I knew that a lot of people loved that story and loved what we were able to achieve after witnessing something very, very sad and disturbing. 
And so I started to ask my friends who I have met over the past 20 years if they had similar stories. And when I say friends, these are the people who are the game changers in the world, the real heroes who are activating and doing amazing things for specific species. And I don't know why I was surprised, but every single one of them had one of those epiphany moments. And so I decided that it, this was the book. That, that was the book then, a stories of, of moments of connection, telepathic connection, moments that people couldn't look away from something, and that changed them and changed the world for the, that one species because they're doing great things. And, uh, yeah, you know, and I make the connection in the book about how the work for that one species helps the human species as well. It, it was quite... Um... Um, profound, I would say, throughout the book, your one one reference, your own personal experience, your locked eyes that you mentioned, your eyes locked. Another was with the Willie Smiths uh, with an orangutan. He said, the little baby orangutan, his eyes stayed with me. These are These are experiences independent of yours, but yet shared. And that was uh, quite profound, I saw in that book. This, this. So is, is there something you experience it yourself? Do you think uh, the average person may experience it and not realize it? Or should become become more aware of that connection, that eyes locked kind of connection? Well, I think that, you know, countless times where our lives were presented with a choice to look at an injustice or to look away. I, I see these moments as opportunities, as gifts, you know, that we've been giving. Um, our instincts know when something is wrong, and when we choose to take action, we are rewarded. Um, and I think people see things every day. Uh, you know, I, I like to give the example in Maine uh, about the chained dog. Okay, mm -hmm. especially when we were younger. I mean, there are now laws against this and everything, but we still we still witness it. And you, that dog is screaming for help. It's barking all the time. Help me! Help me! Get me off! I want to run. I want to be. And we know instinctively that that people who chain dogs twenty four seven that it's not right. You know, it's not right for that dog, and uh, or anyone that matter and we can you know we can act or we don't act but this book is about about moments when you do act and the good that comes from it and how how you're rewarded now um meeting different species in the world um that you know you have to be presented with that you have to be traveling the world and uh, in my case and, and i will tell this story because it is a it's a great story I was in Laos, and I was researching uh, for a book I wanted to do about the Vietnam War. Now, Laos is a communist country, and uh, therefore, being a journalist, I had a government minder with me, uh, a person who wanted to make sure I didn't step out of bounds, if you will. He took me to a cultural park, and John, who my husband now, who was my boyfriend at the time, uh, was with me, and we had separated. And at some point, I heard him yell, Jenny, don't come down this path. And, of course, I did. <laughs> uh, 
And um, they had to. When, had to. Had to. When I got to the uh, bottom of the path, there was a bear, uh, and he was basically confined in a metal straitjacket. He had obviously grown into a cage that had been uh, set up there. It was a concrete slab, um, big, a bell-shaped iron bars, and he, he, he basically couldn't move. And there were about five other bears, four other bears, and they were all placed in a cir- circular around a statue of Buddha. And this bear was sobbing like a baby. And there were tears streaming down his face. He had one of his paws was in his mouth. And there was the, the only water that he had, and I don't know how he could turn to it, was green. Uh, there, there were no, um, and you could understand this, well, there were no feces. So when there's no feces anywhere around, you could surmise that they weren't being fed on a regular basis. And this guy was just a mess. And I looked at him. I stood you know, a foot and a half from him, two feet from him, and our eyes connected. And in that moment, I physically felt a, a surge, uh, and I felt his suffering. I mean, I mean, my knees buckled. I had to hold on to the, the railing, and he showed me what was going on. And then he reached his paw out toward me, and said, look, and I looked down at his paw, and there were um, blisters, red blisters all over his paw. And I examined it, and he just kept saying, look, look, and you know, telepathically, really. And I looked at my minder, and I said, what's wrong with his paw? What, what What's causing that? And he spoke... Um, Laotian to the, uh, the the keeper of the bear and translated it back to me and he said that's where people put their cigarettes out at that point John said Jenny you can't help every suffering animal in the world let's go and while I understood what he was saying I didn't agree and I said, I can't, I can't look away from this. I, I just can't. And so I um, made a commitment to the bear and walked around and made a commitment to the other bears and left. And one thing I knew is that in Laos they were trying to get tourism. And so I really I thought about it, and I made a plea to the government, working with my minder, who was a very nice man, uh, and, and, and I said, look, you want tourism? This isn't the way to do it. You're a Buddhist country. You're based on compassion, and this is as far as you get from compassion. So why don't we build a bear sanctuary, and that will attract people, and they will see the best of your country. And, but then, you know, as the story goes on, and as you know, <laughs> I had to raise the money to build right. a bear sanctuary, and then I had to find out how to build a bear sanctuary, and that took me to Turkey to learn how to build a bear sanctuary. And um, but it, you stuck you with know, it, though. You stuck I, with it. Well, I stuck with. I, I had the. I took a photo of that bear, and I knew that 
we connected for that reason. And I, I guess that's what it that that's what it's all about. Is that you know it was rewarding and enlightening, and um, obviously set me on a path to do this work, not just for pets. You know, I've all, always been working for shelter pets and and still am. But um, it to get just a the bigger picture. So yes. There you go. That's that story. Well, and the stories in this book are very similar, but but not. I mean, they're about, a lot of them about rescues, but it's about connecting with anything from a manta ray to an orangutan to um, an elephant to a pigeon. And the connection uh, was not just looking looking into the eyes. Um, I just, before, I just want to ask, what happened to the bear? It got into the sanctuary, right? Yeah. Right. Uh, it, at 24 months later, we had we had a sanctuary, and he was moved. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what I was going to uh, lost my train of thought. I did have a. Um, I, I was talking about your book to someone, and kind of explaining um, some of the circumstances, the, the horrible circumstances these animals were in in Indonesia and all over the world. And the person said, gee, I don't know if I want to read that. It's going to be really upsetting. And they say, I, under, I said, I understand that. But the impression I got from reading this book is that it's, it's the awareness that you're trying to convey. And you can do similar things at home every day, even if it's a dog, a cat, a duck, something like that. So I tried to explain to this person that these, are, these things are happening in the world but you can change your own world. And I don't know if that's the kind of message that you want to convey. That's what I got when I read the book. Well, that's that's exactly right. And, you know, um, luckily the reviews are um, fantastic coming out about this book. And um, people are saying, and they're not my friends, <laughs> are <laughs> saying, I don't know a lot of these people, um, that, that it's inspirational and empowering. Right. And um, and make people feel good. I worked really hard. You know, you can't tell a book of horrible stories and expect people to walk away feeling good. Right. You know, and in, in and in the same light, people witness horrible things. But I, I mean, I'll bet every one of your listeners today is thinking right now about something they've witnessed in their life that they didn't didn't choose to act on and that they still feel bad about that. I mean, I was in um, Palo Alto a couple days ago and I met a, a doctor and he was very excited about the book, very excited. And he told me, he said, you know, just I, I was at on the university, uh, Stanford University campus talking to him and he said, I used to torture animals here in a research lab. And he said, and I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. He said, I have lived with that my whole life, and I feel bad about it. Um, you know, so going back to this, uh, this book is, is about um, motivating people to feel good uh, about acting. And, and, and you can act in the simplest way. You don't have to witness. Um, a lot of us, who are out there fighting in Washington um, and, and, you know, and on a state level, 
uh, we're witnessing, and we're witnessing for you. All you have to do is when uh, the Humane Society of the United States, other charities, say, can you act on this? Can you make a call to your representative, Senator Collins? Uh, you know, can you make a call to your local representative? Can you just let them know how you feel about this, that you want them to vote a certain way? Uh, that's acting. That's acting. Or, you know, when you see uh, a situation, a chained dog, don't automatically assume that people do that for a reason. Often they don't know what to do with the dog. Often they don't want the dog anymore. They don't, but they don't want to bring the dog in the house. They don't feel comfortable something's happened in their life that's caused that. If you offer help and you even offer to get the dog out of that situation and get it to a no-kill shelter, like I, 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 I'm a volunteer with SPCA of Hancock County, a fantastic organization, as there are a lot of other organizations in Downey's Maine. Um, you know, we'll take, we'll take that dog in. We'll get that dog a great home. But a lot of times, it's just really about being kind to your neighbor and saying, this really upsets me, and I know that this probably isn't your intention. May I get this dog a good home? And you'd be surprised. Our outage, this is uh, down East Maine. Stuff like this happens. I'm very sorry to my listeners and to Jennifer. She was in the middle of a thought, and we blacked out. Um, but we're back. Can you hear us, Jennifer? We've been talking to Jennifer Skiff, author of Rescuing Ladybugs, Inspirational Encounters with Animals That Change the World, and talking about how different people that she met along in her life uh, came across cruelty to animals and uh, did something about it. And we're trying to get her back on the phone. Are you back on the phone, Jennifer? I can hear you. Yes. Well, this is Maine. Have <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got bad weather up there? It's just it's icy, rainy. Uh, didn't I didn't think it was that bad, but I guess it was. And all of a sudden, I was in the middle of darkness. So, but John <laughs> got us back. Wasn't me. No, no, it wasn't you. Um, talking about helping uh, when you see there's a wrong. Uh, one thing you mentioned. Uh, the reward of choosing the right thing is that you're never alone. True. And that is something that, that came out of your book uh, True. repeatedly. So you, so when you, when, in your experiences, when you started to do something about, um, I think there was a, a story about a hotel and some monkeys and <laughs> yeah. you, you initiated helping the monkeys, but you found out later that the staff, wanted those monkeys helped too and they just needed so you found some um uh allies is that is that accurate true true absolutely so i was i traveled to flores indonesia which is an island a remote island in in indonesia with um uh some friends to actually go to komodo island <clears throat> to see komodo dragons in the wild is that story. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> quick, quick. So you were in. Right. So you were in a hotel. Where was this? In Indonesia. 
So I'm in Flores, Indonesia, okay. and I've gone there to uh, it. it <laughs> I've gone there to go to another island to witness Komodo dragons, which I want to tell you wild. about. And I want to tell. You, I want you to tell the read, uh, the listeners about that experience. That's a funny part of your book, but. Well, thank you. Yeah. Do well, the, so do anyway, the, do the monkey thing I, first. I've been convinced by a, a friend uh, that don't worry. This is a very animal-friendly part of Indonesia. Don't worry about anything because Indonesia is really tough on animals, and uh, I don't like to go up there very often. <clears throat> although my husband does, uh, just because it's very confronting for me. I have to be in the right frame of mind. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a. It's not a vacation. So we were driving into this hotel, and my uh, British friend says, Oh, no, it looks like monkeys are on the menu. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, my God, no. And I, <laughs> I looked over to the left, and there they were, a whole bunch of monkeys. And they were, um, they were chained. They had horrible um, neck collars, just iron you know, neck collars, and were chained within a cage. And... They they couldn't actually their feet couldn't touch the ground they couldn't touch each other they had no water they had no food it was just one of those horrible situations and it made me irate actually but as an advocate you can't be irate because that doesn't work that doesn't work to create change so to make a very long story short uh, well it was also there was also a porcupine there a blind porcupine and there were geese that were enclosed just honestly feet away from a beautiful pond. And so I asked for a meeting with the manager, and I am making a long story short. And I said to him, uh, I'm here to help you because this isn't right, and you know that it's not right, and let's, let's do something about this. So we walked over, we talked about it, and he said, we've had many complaints before you. And I said, of course you have. And I said, well, I'm the one here to help you facilitate the change. And he was—he said, I'll have to talk to a few people. And he came back to me and he said, let's do this. And it was probably uh, one of the, the most rewarding days of my life when he chose, I think we, we were all allowed to take all but three. He said he had to keep three of the monkeys. Um, For what reason? Did he tell you why? Well, basically because it was a project, you know, of uh, the hotel's owner, original owners, and um, he didn't feel comfortable. It wasn't, he, I had to choose. I had to choose. Mm. So um, I chose to release, I think it was 12 uh, monkeys that were, had been taken from the wild. And although... The, the three that were left, it was a mother and two babies. And those two babies hadn't been um, born in the wild. So it was going to be harder for them to adjust in the wild, if you will. And so I thought, well, I have to choose three. And I, it was heartbreaking at the time. But um, we, we cut a deal. So all the, all the monkeys uh, that were going were unchained. We put them in, uh, they were put in crates. We, I, I talked to a friend of mine, Barbara Royal, who's in the book. Actually, she's a veterinarian in Chicago. She's mm-hmm. Oprah's personal vet. But she's done a lot of work with animals and wild animals. And I said, what, how do I facilitate 
you know, they're released in a way that they'll survive. And she told me. So uh, along the way, and part of it was, you know, give a week's food supply where we were going. So on that day, we drove high into the mountains where these monkeys had come from. And then we walked them down this beautiful stream into this amazing oasis. And all around us um, were tropical plants and uh, fruit and nut trees everywhere. It, it was Eden for monkeys. And we we released them. They knew it was happening. They One one monkey, his, his little hand came out of the crate, and I put my finger out, and he held on to my finger. You know, it was just that moment of thank you, thank you, thank you. And um, the minute those, those um, crates were open, they were gone. They were gone like ghosts. I, I took a picture, and it looked like ghosts running into the into the for, into the jungle, really. And then I went back, and um, I cut a deal where the the three monkeys that were left, and it was a very large enclosure, were allowed were were to be unchained and have a free reign in the enclosure. So we built um, tire swings, rope swings, um, uh, put in water feeders, did all of that. I made friends, as you know, my favorite part of the story was meeting a porcupine mm-hmm. and you know in maine our our <laughs> scourged <laughs> <released> my life <laughs> with four, yes exactly you. you made a you probably made a lot of money off I, I sent my kids to college with porcupine quills <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, yes and no right what a yeah. miserable experience uh, making porcupine quills that's awful. out it's awful but that porcupine and i became friends and it was such a beautiful beautiful experience but long story short um I kept in touch with the manager of that hotel, and eventually, within, I think, six months later, he said, I just want you to know uh, all of the monkeys have now been released. We're very proud of that. And uh, and the porcupine um, passed, even though for the first time in his life I had given him a log, um, and he, well, probably the first time since, since he had been taken probably from the wild, um, and he he passed in his log, and and the geese were allowed to roam free at, by the end of this. So it was really beautiful. But what was so beautiful was the day after, the the morning after I we had the release of the monkeys. I went to the breakfast, uh, what do you call it? restaurant, if you will, um, to have my coffee. I am a very early, early bird of a person. I usually get up at 4, 4.30 every morning. And so I was down there right when no one else was there, and I was sitting there, and the team there was very used to me because in the morning I'd go and I'd collect food to take to the monkeys and the porcupine and the geese. And so I sat down that morning, and the first member of the staff came up to me, and we don't speak the same language. Um, this is a remote island, so they speak Indonesian, and I and I don't other than, you know, the basic hellos. And um, the first gal, I think, she bowed bowed to me, and she said, thank you, monkey, monkey lady. And mm. and I had, I had this kind of like, oh, my God, that was so sweet. And she walked away, and then this whole stream of staff came one at a time. And I remember the next man came, and it, it was a gentleman, and he came, and he smiled at me, a big grin, and he beat on his chest and his heart, and he said, you know, thank you, monkey lady. 
and I realized, and it, I've you've kind of always known this, but all of these people, if you will, they were chained by their paychecks. They right. didn't want to cause any trouble. They just want to have a job. They just want to feed their family. And they didn't want to speak out because they didn't want to affect their lives or their children's lives. And But yet, we were all on the same page. We all knew it was wrong. And they were, they were freed uh, in their own way um, from the suffering of having to witness it. So that, that is a, um, a common theme throughout the book. Yes, and, many times the person yeah. helping, all of a sudden support comes. And it's from people, governments, companies. Uh, that, that's something people hear in our own individual lives to remember that we're not alone. And also, you know, one thing I've learned in, in the work that I do, the people who exploit animals, for whatever reason it is, they actually make money off the backs of animals. So they have a financial interest. They have a financial incentive in continuing doing what they do. So I try to make the point of not only should you speak up, but when you, when you see things that are terribly wrong, but you must. Because um, you're a volunteer. I mean, seriously, I'm a volunteer in doing this work. Um, I'm not paid to do the the work that I do. And the those people who are who do receive money from animals on on the backs of them, you know, they pay. They have the money to pay for lobbyists. They have the money to fight you. You know, in Washington. And um, it's really important to understand that, that your voice really, really does matter and count. Mm-hmm. There is, a, I'm trying to look at my notes, the part of the book where there was uh, people bringing up animals in the disguise of a sanctuary, but they were, oh, this is the game uh, hunting. Mm-hmm. What was, mm-hmm. uh, what's that called? Um, canned hunting. Canned hunting. That's a canned hunting. So these Rich people, I guess, people can afford it, pay to go into this enclosure and shoot an animal. And there are these farms or these sanctuaries that are that are raising these animals, correct? And they're and they're acting like they're sanctuaries. So tourists come and and they're giving money to these people, thinking that they're saving these animals, and actually they're they're being sent over to the, for the canned hunting. Right. So this this happens in um, this happens in the United States and it happens in Africa. And I like to give this example. Um, well, I haven't given this example yet, but uh, I was at my dog park um, a couple months ago, and I was talking to this, this fantastic woman who loves animals. And she said, "Jenny, you, it, it's so exciting! I'm going on a trip to Africa, and we're going to this um, sanctuary where we get to spend time with lion cubs, and um, you know, feed them and everything." And like my antennas went up. I'm like, oh. oh. No. Let me check into this for you. And I said, well, this is actually not a sanctuary, but they portray themselves as a sanctuary. So this is a place where, um, you know, lions are, are, are bred and uh, the cubs are taken from their mothers and, um, and under the guise of being an orphanage, they're saying these animals are orphaned, tourists come, they pay, sometimes they pay for a week to spend time cleaning cages and thinking they're helping. But what happens is um, these cubs are raised to a certain age. 
they're put in a fenced enclosure, and people come and spend, you know, twenty, twenty to fifty thousand dollars to basically walk up to one of them, because these animals are hand reared, and and like human beings. So they're imprinted. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And um, to shoot it, and to shoot that animal, so they can go home and put their head on a wall. I, I of course, I don't understand this way of thinking at all. Uh, I I take no pleasure. Uh, and I do not understand people who do in killing an animal. I, I, I just, uh, unless, you know, I, I understand um, hunting for food. I completely understand that, having grown up in Maine, and I know people who do. And uh, But I just do not, I do not get it. So, yeah, it's trophy hunting, but that's also canned hunting. And so we tell the story about this great man in South Africa, about the moment, he connected with an animal called a caracal, which is a small um, cat, lynx-like cat. Mm-hmm. And his battle to keep that, that animal and her kids alive in a place where they were considered a nuisance species and how that's motivated him to uh, create an awareness campaign globally to educate people about uh, canned hunting and it was my pleasure to interview him and to be able to, and it's my pleasure also to just be on this radio show to tell people, just be alert. You would really, <laughs> you know, every day right now in politics, no matter what side you're on, you hear something and you go, oh, God, I thought I had heard it all, right? Yeah. Well, that's what it's like um, being an animal advocate. You go, you've got to be kidding me. You know, there's a new one every day. Well, this caracal example is the government and the conservation department, they made a law. And, right, the law was that the the species was a problem species Mm -hmm. and must be removed Mm -hmm. from the environment. So it was, like, legal to do it. So it it gave the public permission. Yeah, I didn't really notice that so much growing up in Maine as I have uh, spending time in Australia You know, Australia, they consider themselves the purest country when it comes to wildlife a lot, and foxes were introduced at some point, and rabbits were introduced at some point just through pets, and they've overpopulated, and they affect the native species. So, you know, then these these animals are called... Are you there? Yes. Yep. Oh, good. All right. I'm on somebody else's phone. Okay. (laughs) There must be a call in, so bear with me. Okay. Um, You don't have to answer it. (laughs) The government all uh, actually pays money uh, and and pays taxpayer uses taxpayer money to bait uh, throw baits um, poison baits from the sky to kill foxes and of course it kills it kills a lot of people's dogs right. as well right. just to uh, eradicate a nuisance what they can't term a nuisance species yeah, and that's interesting it's still happening which mm-hmm. I don't know if this was your quote but. When you see this, you mentioned you had to play the game, calm when impatient, intelligent when frustrated, pragmatic when insane with anger. That was in your book, and you probably have to practice that every time. I think um, you do get you, – you, it, it becomes natural to advocate and not, not be Explode. Uh, extreme. You, you don't – you – Everybody, when it comes to animals, everyone has their place. Animal activists, they're showing people. They are showing people what's going on. 
animal advocates, which I consider myself an advocate, uh, it, you have to stay very calm. You can't create change by screaming about what's going on. You have to really, you have to tell stories. And I think that that's what this book's about, is about telling stories that actually enlighten and empower people and tell, tell amazing stories about good that's being done in the world. I mean, you and I, you're asking me very, very specific questions that lead people to, to hear, hear things that are negative that's going on in the world. But with every, everything that's witnessed in this book, not only has great come of it for the animals, but for all animals, including humans. And that's the important connection, because not everyone, um, you know, a lot of people will say, why do you do that for animals and not human beings? But in this book, we're making the connection that when you work for animals, you are actually helping Homo sapiens as well. Do we have a, a we have a caller? Um, I don't know who it is, so we'll just, uh, who is this? Uh, it's David. I'm calling from Brooklyn. Uh, Hi, David. How are you? Thank you, Dr. Hunt, for your show. As always, it's so right on from what I'm thinking. And, thank you. Uh, and thank you, Jenny, for the work you're doing. Uh, I, I, while I've been listening, I've been out making little channels for the uh, the, the ice melt to run through in ah. hopes that the uh, the big chunks of ice will gradually dissolve in the rain. <laughs> and uh, I, it occurs to me that that's sort of what this work is like, you know, in the big old uh, icy uh, corners of the human consciousness, you know, just we're making little little channels through working with these animals, you know, where, where, where it's, you know, it's more or less easier than in a lot of other cases to see what the humane human thing to do would be and to interest others in helping to do it. Uh, so I, I really salute the work. I, I just ha I have one question. It's a, a, a tickler question, you know. I mean, I, I just have to ask, what about the monkeys? Or no, what about the mosquitoes? Or what about the ticks? If if we came up with a way where we could poison them, which we have with the, with the uh, mosquitoes, and I wouldn't doubt if we're working on one with ticks, uh, what about that? I mean, in what sense is this? All life have a right to exist, okay. and even the the kinds that are more or less, you know, even to um, semi what you might call educated minds, you know, uh, making life difficult. For well, that that is a existential question. It's uh, we probably would need another two or three hours, um, but I think um, that the point is is respecting, like some of the religions. Uh, I don't know if it's the Hindu or not, but. Um, respect all life, and it's it's kind of relative. You have to kind of sort it out. What, what do you think, Jennifer? Well, David, thank you very much for that question. And um, I think in the big picture, it's it's about your own consciousness and and how you move forward. Um, I think you said mosquitoes and ticks. ticks did you? Right. Yes, that's what you right. said. Okay. Well, in my world, um, I, I'll just be very honest about how I feel. Uh, now with with diseases um, that they can transmit, uh, I'm an animal as well, and um, I'm really fighting for uh, I fight for my the lives of my dogs and myself, and so um, 
uh, mosquitoes, if they're biting me, are fair game. Uh, and um, you wouldn't know this unless you read the book, but a year and a half ago, I, so two years ago, I was bitten by a tick on Mount Desert Island, and um, six months later, I could no longer walk, and I couldn't speak. And uh, so I have Lyme disease, and I had to be ho- uh, taken to a hospital in Europe to save my life, uh, and I had uh, I was treated with six infusions a day for a month. And I'm alive, and I, uh, I'm really happy about that. Um, but uh, as far as the ticks go, <laughs> uh, I can I can fill it fair, in. <laughs> fair game. But yeah. you know, as far as far as spraying, um, you know, and going to the Monsanto way and all that, you know, uh, in, in all seriousness, think about everything else that that you're killing. And I guess I think everyone is enlightened to these these subjects and. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of people out there will relate to my story about the health issues with Lyme disease. And, and I'm, my heart goes out to anyone right now who has it and is suffering. And definitely reach out to me and I'll, I'll give you everything I know as to how to um, come back from that. Um, but it's a great question. It's, and uh, I think it's everybody's own consciousness, really. And it's, it's um, what... What critter is attacking you for survival versus that same critter out in the jungles um, living its, their lives? So it really is kind of contextual in my mind. It's, it's the context of where the animal is. If it's something threatening our um, life, then we need to do something about that. Um, that doesn't mean we have Monsanto in, have insecticide and kill every mosquito on earth because that wouldn't solve the problem anyway. It would just create more problems. Uh, this we have about a couple more minutes, so if there's any other callers, four six nine zero five zero zero four six nine zero five zero zero, get on the horn, so we can um, answer any questions or make any comments. We just have a couple more minutes. I wanted to add, uh, Jennifer before we go. It's just, the time is flying. Um, the book title was when I first saw it, "Rescuing Ladybugs," was really catchy, and I thought, okay. So, but by the time I read it, the book. It became so meaningful, and I think now the my listeners can appreciate that after we've talked about your book. Uh, you asked the different people in your books at the end of each chapter um, about ladybugs, if they ever rescued ladybugs, and they had a lot of different answers. Uh, were there any answers that were surprising to you or something that stand, stood out in terms of ladybugs? Well, I think uh, the biggest surprise t- – to me was that no matter where the contributor grew up in the world, nearly every one of them had been taught the ladybug story and had an affinity for the bug. Mm-hmm. And the title of the book is about is called Rescuing Ladybugs because, you know, as a child, we're taught that story. If a ladybug lands on you to blow her away so that she can get safely back to her family, and at that moment of that time, that when we're all so young, we're being taught to have empathy and compassion for the tiniest of, uh, of species, to, you know, a bug. And I think that's really what, what is the thread uh, with this book is that we have it in us 
from a very young age. We're 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 young. We're empathic. We're we're children. Butterflies make us happy. Ants intrigue us, and it's about carrying that thread throughout our lives and not disconnecting from that. Because when you do you when you do good for animals, and that includes human beings, you are rewarded. There is good luck and and good feelings that comes with doing good for others. And that's such, that's so important, which leads me to another question. I think I have a couple more minutes. Uh, early, early experience on how our children are brought up. Um, you had several examples, your own early experience, the uh, poachers story about how poachers are looked on in, in the culture where the poacher, poacher, uh, poachers are uh, looked upon as gods. And then the pigeon shoots in Pennsylvania. Uh, if you could just kind of fold those into the idea of how <laughs> I just, well you're the, you're a writer well, just you can do this. write a book right <laughs> yeah, just write a, yeah just write a book about it but just the, the the early experience of how children are being indoctrinated into good things but also be aware that it's some of this bad stuff is being perpetuated i guess is my point and my like you to uh, comment on that well you asked me about my own personal experience so um at, at, at a point in my life when I was about 12, I had a stepfather uh, in Hancock, Maine, and he was uh, a very, very cruel man. Um, he was cruel to people, and he was cruel to animals. And so for me, at that young age, I mean, I already knew what was right and wrong, and I loved animals. So his cruelty for animals act- actually ignited my passion to advocate them for them. So you had asked about that, so there's that. But as much as um, we we are working um, to teach our children um, to be kind to animals and to other people, um, there are always things going on in the world that, while they seem fun and you can get caught up in them, uh, they're they're cruel. Um, and so Wayne Pacelli, who's the former head of the Humane Society of the United States, says for him that moment came, you know, he grew up with dogs, I grew up with dogs, so you love animals when you grow up with a dog, mm-hmm. you know, or a cat. And um, he witnessed something in Pennsylvania, what it was called a pigeon shoot. And so the local fire station was raising money for the fire station, and they had an annual pigeon shoot. And he went to, to see what is this all about. And these birds were all put in these um, crates and released. And a whole bunch of people, you know, stood up and shot them when they were released as they were flying up. And then um, they stopped shooting. And all the little children were allowed or pushed to go and stomp on them to finish off killing them or wring their necks with their hands. And um, this still goes on. You know, it still goes on in the United States and uh, not as much as it used to. I mean, the work is being done. But, you know, to be indoctrinated, to be cruel, is not right. You know, it's not right. Uh, And I think people don't think about it when other people are are leading it for a cause, you know, animal cruelty to raise money for something. Just not cool. (laughs) Not cool. So what we're talking about is um, 
children and raising those children to have compassion for animals and, and not the opposite, because when they're indoctrinated uh, to be cruel, that will, that's a thread that will continue throughout their life. And hopefully we can break that. We've run out of time, Jennifer, believe it or not. Um, I just want to give one quote that you had in the book from Peter Singer, the animal advocate. Uh, Extend your strong emotional connection you may have with an animal or species to all animals. So go from small to big. And I think that's what you've been doing. It's a wonderful book. Uh, Thank you so much for spending the time with us. Rescuing Ladybugs. Inspirational Encounters with Animals That Changed the World with Jennifer Skiff. Thank you so much. Thank you. A pleasure. Jennifer? She hung up. Support for WERU comes from Penobscot Bay Press, committed to providing community news and information. Publishing three weekly newspapers, the Weekly Packet, Island Advantages, and the Castine Patriot, as well as the Bay Community Register, the Summer Seasonal Guide, and more. Also on the web at penobscotbaypress.com. Have you heard about the Main Ocean School yet? The Maine Ocean School is a new public magnet school based in Searsport with a mission to provide a theme-based high school education focused on, you guessed it, the ocean. Using Maine's deep maritime connections, the Maine Ocean School emphasizes leadership, work ethic, and transferable skills 